Hi, I'm Guangjin, the producer of Empires, an Asian business podcast. Across the past few episodes, we've introduced to you Samsung, the dynastic consumer electronics titan that is bigger than you think. But to learn more, we've got two guests today who are familiar with Samsung. The first is Jeffrey Kane. My name is Jeffrey Kane. I was a longtime technology correspondent and an author. And the second is Mark Barnes. My name's Mark. I've been in Vietnam about four years. Jeffrey was a longtime tech correspondent and also the author of Samsung Rising, one of our key sources in understanding more about the company. Well, Mark Barnes is a senior editor based in Vietnam for the Vietnam Briefing. Together, they'll give us a better look at Samsung beyond the books and articles that we read. And we'll start off first with Jeffrey, author of Samsung Rising. Thanks for having me, Guangjin. I had been in various locations around the world, but most specifically, I spent five years in South Korea. I had been studying the Korean language, writing about Korean society, Korean economics and business and tech. And I ended up writing a book called Samsung Rising. It's a book about the emergence of what are called the Korean chable groups or the conglomerates, which dominate most of the economy and the politics of Korea. Samsung Rising, it's the story of the company that we all know, Samsung, that makes our phones and our TVs and semiconductors and whatever else you might think they make. They make so much of everything. They control about one-fifth of the South Korean economy. They produce one-fifth of its exports. And it's the story about how this company became a major competitor in only one generation after coming from one of the poorest countries in the world, which was South Korea, and how they took on Sony and Apple and all the other giants of its time. I think the book is insane. Having read it, having also used it as some of the reference material, I think it's incredibly well-researched. To all of the listeners out there, right? could you share what were some of the interesting things that happened in the process of creating the book? Yes. So as I started out, because Samsung is so big in South Korea, I knew that I was going to be up against this giant that, you know, controls so much of the politics that has a hand in everything in society. So I knew that as a journalist and a writer, I did not have long before Samsung would figure out that I was working on them. I had already known their people. I had been, I had met their executives, their vice presidents, the CEOs of various Samsung companies. And I knew that because it was such a tight knit network, this was going to be a very difficult book to write because they were going to try to stop it. One of the things about Samsung is that they do not want people to write books about them. They're extremely powerful in South Korea. And so early on in my research, I started you know, sending out emails and talking to old friends, gathering material. And then one morning I woke up and it was an email from Samsung's public relations vice president. And he said, oh, by the way, so we heard that you're writing a book about us. And why don't you tell us a little bit about it? We'll think about it. We'll consider cooperating. It was a very friendly and cordial letter. He didn't sound threatening, but I knew that, you know, if Samsung did not like what I was doing, they would move to try to squash the book. They would go to, you know, go to people who they know and they would say, don't don't talk to this guy, ignore his interview requests. And I was concerned that that's what would happen. So I, I decided to play friendly with Samsung. We talked about the book. In the end, they said we cannot cooperate. But that did not matter for me because I already had gathered a lot of material. Samsung had allowed me into their headquarters and I had a lot of interview material. I had a, a lot of transcripts and recordings and, and you know, there, it was really no problem in the end. So that's just one example of kind of an interesting 
you know, experience that I had. But as I got deeper into this rabbit hole, there was more and more that kept happening that actually got quite strange. So around 2016, there were rumors circulating. I was among the, the stock investors, the shareholders. I was listening to what they were talking about. And there were rumors circulating that there was some kind of shaman or some kind of shamanistic, you know, prophecy, soothsayer woman who had somehow gotten control of the president and that Samsung might have been involved in this too. And I thought, okay, come on, this cannot be true. So I started looking into it further. And then one day I turned on the news in South Korea and it turned out that it was true that there was a tablet that had been found, a computer tablet that had all of the South Korean presidents and her confidential, you know, confidential documents and that sort of thing. And it was in the possession of this woman who was the daughter of a former cult leader who's now deceased. This woman, Choi Shun Seal, had been um, attempting to direct the president's, you know, daily schedule and, and telling her what she should do and, and what she should not do. And in the end, the president of South Korea was impeached, removed from office and sentenced to prison for the scandal. It turned out that Samsung, in an attempt to get the favor of the president, had given bribes in the form of racing horses to the daughter of the shaman. And that was something that was demanded by the South Korean president. So this whole very strange network behind the scenes of just things going on. And I thought, wow, you know, I've been in South Korea for a long time now. You know, I've seen a lot of crazy things happen here, but I have not seen anything absolutely that crazy. So. This was a major event in South Korean history. There were enormous protests. The, the the vice chairman of Samsung at the time, who was the heir to the Samsung empire, Jay Lee, was arrested, spent some time in prison. He was later pardoned, but he spent time in prison for what was alleged to be bribery. I mean, it was a major, major event in South Korea. This kind of thing was the strange and dark underbelly that I kept running into. You know, as a business journalist, I was covering the business. I was writing about, you know, how does Samsung make the phones? How do they compete with Apple? But whenever I would get deep into that story, the other side of the story would keep popping up too. And that story would be one of its ruling family and their political maneuvers and how do they keep power? How do they work with the yeah. government? I'm curious, at any point in writing this book, did you feel like, okay, I'm a little bit in danger? Have you ever felt anxiety because of that? I did fear at certain points that, you know, maybe Samsung has someone watching me. I mean, you know, maybe they're not sitting outside of, of my apartment taking photos, but they might have somebody who's monitoring what I'm posting on social media, just trying to get a sense of what I've been up to. Samsung, you know, for the most part, they left me alone. They did not attempt to interfere with the book, but, you know, they would tell people occasionally not to talk to me or don't say this, don't say that. But other than those few instances, they were mostly hands-off, and I didn't have much of a problem throughout the book writing process. In South Korea, there are all kinds of conspiracy theories. I mean, my Korean friends who work at businesses, you know, they're, they're business executives, and they're, they were telling me, like, you should not write about Samsung because they're going to kill you. They're going to throw you out of a window. <laughs> they have, they're they're going to, you know, they're going to stage a car crash. It's going to be really bad. And I heard I heard all kinds of these stories that, I, you know, I, I doubt that they're true, but there were rumors about, you know, secret lovers. The, the secret lover of the chairman was, you know, was killed or injured because she was threatening to reveal the secrets of the family. I, 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 I couldn't find any evidence for those stories. And if there was evidence out there, I probably would have found it. So 
I don't think that they're true. But this is, you know, just to understand, I think, Korean society and Korean business, you have to understand this element of it, that it is laden with conspiracy theories and fear and sort of this feeling that these powerful chable these dynasties are controlling the nation behind the scenes and they have lots and lots of power. You should fear them. Yeah, it's insane. Actually, Samsung asked me to interview you. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So awesome. Thanks for, thanks for sharing all of these things. Now let's move into Southeast Asia, which is where I'm based in. I'm based in Singapore. And there are a lot of questions on how much control and how much influence Samsung has across the region, right? In your process of writing this book, your experience of talking to people, have you seen some of this control that Samsung exerts? Yes. So Samsung does exert control. They do make up a, a growing part of the labor force. They have been expanding in Vietnam in particular with the electronics and the semiconductors businesses. But the significance of Samsung is, you know, not so much that, you know, it has a negative influence in the region. It's more that Samsung uh, I think that it's really a model that many people in Southeast Asia look up to as something that they would hope to achieve one day. You know, what I, I, I used to live in Vietnam also and Cambodia too. One of the points that people would often make is that, you know, the, the stories, the, the economic success stories of Japan and South Korea um, were something to admire and study and imitate. So when it came to a company like Samsung, you know, that's the end goal. I, I remember back when this was about 13 years ago, I had been among some Vietnamese business executives too, and, and was, you know, hearing their stories and sort of how they think. And they would often say, you know, when we're studying business case studies, we don't really study Apple or Ford or, you know, Mercedes or those sorts of companies. They are big success stories, but, you know, they, they have their own historical context in which they emerge. It makes more sense in a, in a country like Vietnam, they would say, you know, we study NEC or Sony. NEC is a big semiconductor firm. We study Hyundai for automobiles. We study Samsung because there's a very specific developmental pattern that, that Japan and Korea had that would apply to Vietnam nicely. It's, it's this tendency to use the government to seed, you could say, light industries. So the idea is to seed light industries, to bring in workers from the countryside, and then to, to tax those light industries and use them to uh, inter intervene in heavy industries. So this is getting into the petrochemicals, the semiconductors, the advanced materials that every country needs to really succeed. Japan executed that brilliantly in the second half of the 20th century. South Korea and Samsung studied that pattern and executed it quite well too and even overtook the Japanese companies at their own game. And now Vietnam and other countries, Thailand was once trying to do this, the Philippines was once trying to do this, and also what else, Indonesia has tried to do some of this. Some of those countries have fallen a little bit by the wayside, they haven't succeeded at what they set out to do originally, but Vietnam and Malaysia in particular, I think that they're the closest to the South Korean model when it comes to building a national economy that is centered around a few major firms. Right, right. And, and just for context, right, what do you mean by light industry than heavy industry? So light industry would be garments, mostly, or paper. Bas basic industries that, you know, if you were to look around the world right now and look at the difference between a, a low-income or a middle-income country versus a high-income country, you know, the high-income, like, for, to get from middle-income country to high-income country, you have to make that transition from light industries, paper, 
you know, garments and so forth to semiconductors and petrochemicals. It's not always the case. I mean, Singapore is a good example of a financial economy more than a heavy industries economy. So it's not always the case that that happens. But this is the hardest transition to make because there's something that economists call the middle income trap. It's the tendency to arrive at middle income status and to get stuck because it's extremely difficult to build heavy industries without major government involvement at the beginning. There needs to be some kind of government direction because the problem is that middle income countries, they're competing with all these other countries that are more advanced than them. And, you know, if if their markets are too open, this is the South Korean model. If they open their markets to every country, they're all going to come in and put local businesses out of business. They won't be able to expand into those heavy industries. So by closing the markets and protecting local businesses and giving them the funding they need, very competitive funding to build their chemicals and semiconductors industries, that's sort of the final stage that South Korea used to get to where it is now. And then after that, they started opening the economy. And that's what allowed these companies to become so globalized. Now for the last question, wanted to ask, with everything that you know so far, do you have any predictions on Samsung moving forward? Yes. So I think that the future of Samsung is going to be artificial intelligence chips. I don't think that the future will be AI software. We're not going to see like a chat GPT coming out of Samsung because Samsung's mastery is in is in the hardware. They're great hardware makers. At their heart, they are manufacturers. Samsung was a company that was built on the factory floor. It was not built in the Silicon Valley office. It was not a startup designing software. So it's just, it's not in their blood. They've struggled with this for years. It's in my book too. They have struggled to make software. They have an AI chat assistant called Bixby that has not done well. It has failed over and over and they can't quite figure out how to make it into Alexa, like Amazon or, you know, one of these other big AI firms. So the problem now is, you know, Samsung has tinkered in software. They've pulled back because they've realized they're not really that good at it. And they're going extremely hard on the hardware side. They're, they're going they're deep into chips, semiconductors. So they recently did pull out of what are called memory chips. These are the older chips that are a little easier to make. They pulled back on that investment, but in the long run, they're going into what are called logic chips. And these are the types of chips that are gonna power, you know, a chat GPT in the future. These are the chips that are gonna power, you know, when we have in the future, the, the talking robots that take our orders and they clean our house for us. If, if it ever comes to that, this is going to be a major, major industry because there are really only two companies that can do this successfully now. One of them is TSMC in Taiwan and one of them is Samsung. There is also Intel in America, but Intel is so far behind that, like the American semiconductor industry is pretty much done. It's just, it's not a major force anymore and it's not gonna be a force. It's really gonna be South Korea versus Taiwan going into the future. So that's what we have to look out for. You know, if you're a stock investor or if you're you know, interested in business and you wanna know what the future is of these businesses, you really wanna stay focused on where AI is headed and what kind of hardware we're going to need to sustain AI. Yeah. Thank you so much for spending the time on Empires. And to all of the listeners out there, if they're interested to know more about your book, tell them what it is and where can they go ahead and find it. Yeah. So the book is called Samsung Rising, the inside story of the South Korean giant that set out to beat Apple and conquer tech. 
It focuses a lot on the Apple versus Samsung wars, which were the major story when I was writing it. And it also tells the story of the emergence of South Korea as a major tech powerhouse. It's available at all bookstores. It's on Amazon. It's at local bookstores. It's something that, you know, you can find. Just Google it. It's online. It's available everywhere. And hope you enjoy it. Now, let's head over to Ho Chi Minh City to meet Mark Barnes and to learn more about how Samsung's involvement in Vietnam looks like. Let's kind of go into some of the early reports that you guys have written. The question is, what are they doing in Vietnam and why? So basically, Samsung sort of came to Vietnam. I think it was around 2008. They sort of officially decided they were going to open a factory in Vietnam. The factory they opened was in a place called Bac Ninh, north of, north of Hanoi, and then another one in Tai Nguyen, which is also very close to Bac Ninh. At the time, like those sort of areas were more or less farming, agricultural communities, a lot of forestry sort of work. But yeah, once Samsung sort of opened up there, it ended up with this whole sort of ecosystem now around electronics manufacturing. And it's attracted a lot of different, a lot of different companies, a lot of different electronics manufacturers. Uh, I guess sort of northern, northern Vietnam is quite, quite popular for manufacturing in electronics because of its proximity to, to China. A lot of the raw materials and input components come in from obviously across the border. And then, yeah, it's pretty easy to get them down to Tai Nguyen and then across to a place called Haiphong, where there's a massive port there to ship them off to the rest of the world. So, yeah, that's sort of basically basically why you sort of set up in northern Vietnam. Tai Nguyen's only about 80 kilometers from Hanoi as well, which is obviously a population center in Vietnam. So there's a lot of labor here, relatively well-skilled. Yeah, so there's also access to that sort of that sort of population base, that labor force too, which I guess makes it an attractive sort of option for setting up any sort of factory, really. Right. But yeah, there's a lot of experience there around electronics at this point. Right. It, it sounds like it's a good balance between getting skilled labor and getting cheap labor, right? Sure. Well, I guess Samsung's operations have sort of changed a lot over time. So when they got here, I think it was more about the cheap labor. One of the things I, I think they've probably contributed to in part as well is upskilling Vietnamese workers, which I think... Yeah, I mean, I was looking at statistics earlier today. Around 2015, they only had sort of 10,000 workers. Right now, it's up to about 65,000 in, in Tai Nguyen, at the factory in Tai Nguyen. That's not all of Vietnam, like, just to be clear. But <laughs> the point is that as they've, as they've worked in, in Vietnam, they've sort of upskilled the, the labor force as well. This obviously has seen, you know, wages rise. But yeah, but I guess they have that sort of balance, the location definitely, with its proximity to China and, and the port at Haiphong, but also the labor force and the fact that they've sort of built the labor force themselves. Yeah, has, it has definitely worked to their advantage. Interesting. And everything that you've painted right now makes Samsung's influence sound 100% positive. But in terms of influence, are there also moments where you see that their investment into Vietnam has some negative repercussions? As an exporter, I think last year is about $65 billion worth of exports Samsung was responsible for, which is about 20% of Vietnam's total exports. So, I mean, one of the challenges I see now is that Vietnam is quite dependent on Samsung for a lot of its industry. Like I said, it employs 65,000 people. That's a lot. That's a fairly decent chunk of workforce. Um, so, I mean, yeah, I, I wouldn't necessarily say it's it's negative, but I think there is a challenge there that needs to probably be addressed at some point, that it is heavily dependent on Samsung. 
That said, there's other things. For example, Samsung last year opened a um, uh, R&D facility in, in Hanoi. Might have been earlier this year, actually, for about $220 million. And that's about essentially doing research and development in Vietnam, which will require high-skilled workers, right? And that's, again, something that they will probably need to build themselves in large part in order to make sure that, you know, they have a sufficient workforce for what they want to do. So yeah, it's kind of like definitely a lot of economic benefits, but it does make the country very dependent on Samsung. The last question is a bit more future forward. With everything that you've kind of described, what are some predictions that might happen within Southeast Asia or maybe in Vietnam? So, I mean, there's a few few things happening right now with respect to Samsung. For one, global minimum tax, I guess, comes into force in Korea next year. At the moment, like, I'm not sure how much tax Samsung pays, but the Vietnamese government does give FDI Enterprises quite good tax breaks. There's quite a lot of reporting on it. I think the CEO of Samsung gave an interview the other day to one of the local papers talking about how they're going to sort of, you know, what advantages Vietnam can offer instead of minimum taxes. Uh, Sorry, instead of tax breaks. Uh, But it's not clear what they are as yet. From my understanding, the tax that they do pay is is lower than the 15% that the global minimum tax would attract. So there's sort of a challenge there, I guess, for them moving forward. The other thing that's happening right now is there's talk of diversification in supply chains, which I guess is happening with a lot of companies sort of everywhere. Samsung has committed to invest another $2 billion into, into Vietnam, which would bring its total up to about $20 billion. So that's something that it seems fairly certain will happen. At the same time, there were a couple of product lines I know that moved back to Korea from, from Tainuan, just to shore up their sort of supply chains. I think Vietnam does seem to be very focused on diversifying away from Samsung in the sense that they want to be more, less dependent on one sort of big organization. But you can already sort of see that now, like the the percentage of exports is slowly dropping away, sort of what Samsung, what Samsung accounts for. So yeah, so that's sort of what I would be, I would be watching. That global minimum tax is going to be, is going to be a big challenge moving forward. That was Mark Barnes. Senior Editor, Vietnam Briefing. If you want to learn more, you can subscribe to their news analysis and publications. Link is in the description. In the next episode of Empires, we'll explore the Philippines telecommunications industry, particularly Globe Telecom, which rules against the dominant player PLDT and their fintech subsidiaries Gcash and Maya that triggered the fintech wars within the country.